there were some people who were saying, oh, 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 do you mean my desire to make change, to do good things, to make a better world, I can do it and still be myself, still be authentic to who I am, rather than I have to pretend to be someone else because people who make change look like this. You mean I can make change, I can make a difference, but I can do it my way. And that was extraordinary. That was just, just amazing. Welcome to Better Business Founder, the podcast for purpose-driven business founders seeking to build a meaningful business on their own terms. I'm Nikki Tang, and I'm here with you today to find out how better business founders build strong businesses that deliver value to people and to the planet. Are you ready to create change with your business? If so, let's go. We don't need to shout, but we do need to speak. We can't make everything right, but we can make some things better. We can't see the whole yet, but we're noticing the shifts. Changes that are happening, people who are emerging as if from a deep sleep covered by layers of neglect and judgment, awakening to a new dawn. Glimpses of hope in the sunrise of spring. We've just listened to one of the daily poem of Sue Heverington, our guest today on the podcast. Sue Heverington is a writer a catalyst and a thinking partner for innovators and changemakers. Sue first used the phrase quiet disruptor as a quick way to explain her unusual broad backstory, which included a decade as pioneering public service chief executive of the NHS, the National Health Service in the UK. When she first described herself as a quiet disruptor, Instead of being bombarding with questions about the meaning of this phrase, people suddenly feel seen and understood with these two words that give them permission to be more true to themselves. So Sue wrote a book on quiet disruptors. I also had a real aha moment when I first encountered quiet disruptors. And I also immediately feel that these two words fit me very, very well. Something magical just happened. Yes, I think I might be one of those quiet disruptors. So, of course, I read the book, which is a beautifully written manifesto about the new change makers, those with the courage to speak softly about things that matter and take action to become the change they want to see in the world. Does it ring a bell? Are you a quiet disruptor? Let's find out with Sue Heverington. I'm very glad to talk to you today because 
when I found out about your book, uh, the one that we're going to talk about a lot, it's like I had the moment of epiphany. Oh, wonderful. That's just wonderful. <laughs> yes, because your book is called Quiet Disruptors. And I was like, wow, that's a phrase that I've been waiting all my life. It's probably something I might have been doing and a lot of people have been doing without knowing it, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. A number of people have said that. They've said, I wouldn't have put those two words together, but oh my goodness me, they express who I am. I feel seen, I feel heard, which is just extraordinary, isn't it? That just, that words can have that effect on people. It can open windows. It can give us confidence yes. to say, this is who I am. Yes. I can do this. <laughs> yes, I can do this because there are so many things in my life and actually in everybody's life, they think, okay, I'm not happy with it. And I'm not really sure this is how you should do or think or behave, but you're just mm -hmm. keeping it because, I mean, who are you to tell people what they should do or they must do or they shouldn't do. And the best thing that I've learned in my life is to lead by example and just behave differently. And I didn't know that there was um, this was um, you know, something that is called quite disruptors. So yeah, so today we're <laughs> here to talk about quite disruptors, but I would like to start off by the beginning. Indeed. My graduate program was in development studies. And yes. that was what you studied at university, development studies. Mm. Maybe you could explain what development studies is, because a lot of people don't know, and probably why you decide to study that. Was back in the 80s something? So it was. Ooh, it was even before that. Okay, well, <laughs> it, just before that. Yes, it was. Um, it was in the late 70s, and I went to a. Um, a university that was starting to get known for doing quite radical things and was starting to get a reputation as being a place, if you want to think differently and approach things differently, then the University of East Anglia in Norwich was a good place to go. So it wasn't traditional at all. Um, and your question's really interesting because the what led to me going there in that sense is it's a bit like the compass of my life, really. You know, when you look at the thread in your life, when you look back, you realise that there are things that speak of that common thread all the way through. So why development studies and why at the University of East Anglia? Well, development studies is, at that stage, was looking at, in particular, how development, particularly rural development, could best happen in what you might call the developing world. So in Africa, in parts of Asia, in parts of South America. And the thing that attracted me to it was, number one, it was courageous in challenging the way things had been done previously. And there's something about me that's quite a rebel. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and secondly, it did so by saying, actually, we're dealing with real people and real lives in real environments. Therefore, the approach of saying, let's just look at economics or let's just look at sociology 
or let's just look at biology or, you know, and all of the different things. The course that I did was an amazing attempt to integrate all of these disciplines. And that to me made a lot of sense. I'd seen quite a lot of life before I went there. Um, I was still quite young, but my background was quite unusual. And I knew that intuitively, I knew that if we wanted to solve real world problems, then we had to do that in the real world. And the real world isn't made up of silos. We actually needed to think about how things were integrated and where things knock on one to another. And actually, that's been the theme of my life, which is seeing the whole system and finding ways of integrating within the whole system. I've done a lot of crossing boundaries. Mm. <laughs> yes. I remember my decision to go for development studies was, as I told you, it was graduate program. So I had a couple of years of work experience and I was working in an investment bank, I mean, mm -hmm. in investment banks, a couple of banks, and also as a management consultant. Mm -hmm. And it was so unreal, mm -hmm. surreal. And I just wanted a break. I just wanted to deep dive into something that that is really unknown to me. And um, development studies is something that is really, really far from my back then, my everyday life, which is very yes. corporate and profit oriented and not taking the human element in the development. Yeah. It was uh, early 2000. And mm. um, also, I looked at them at the courses like um, a menu. And, and I was like, oh, wow, I didn't know this environmental governance, there's such a thing. That should be very interesting. Mm. And um, industrialization, yeah, because for me, it was more about industrialization rather than agricultural rural development. And um, wow, that sounds very interesting. And also political ecology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, yeah. Because you can't, we can't engage with real world challenges unless we think about things like power mm. and we think about who has resources and who doesn't, but also unless we also think about how people relate together. Uh, I mean, for me, one of the classic examples of where the traditional approach to development really wasn't working was a massive scheme in Sudan a million acres. So big, big scheme. And some bright spark went in from a government, uh, from a, you know, international. The thing to do is let's convert this whole area to producing peanuts, ground nuts. Now, in one sense, that was a good idea because the climate and the soil and stuff actually were very suited to ground nut production, but it completely missed the whole structure of the rural society, the communities, how they worked together. And this scheme, the Gazira scheme, was such a catastrophic failure because what they didn't do was ask the questions about how real life was lived on the ground. Um, <laughs> and if you don't do that, your bright ideas are going to fail. And get the stockholders involved. Oh, oh absolutely. Absolutely. You studied development studies, and I guess that you had a vision of the world in mind. 
I did. And I think in one sense, I've already started exploring that in this conversation in terms of saying, I think that we need to see the big picture. So for me, the vision of the world is not about separate parts. It's actually about how the whole thing fits together. And that vision of the world means that we need to take care of all of the aspects rather than just saying, we're going to focus on this, you know, the profit or the industry or whatever. Because what we do has a knock-on effect. So what we do, if I go back to the Gazira scheme, what that scheme did was it made thousands and thousands of people homeless. Hmm. Although it was supposed to be giving them, you know, an income, it actually took their livelihoods away. Yes. And and whole villages, whole communities were uprooted and utterly destroyed. So my vision is that we see the world as a whole, the people as a whole. We recognise that we have um, we have a responsibility to care for all aspects of life. We have a responsibility to the environment. We have a responsibility to our fellow man. And for each of us, we have a role to play. So I guess the other part of my vision for the world is that everyone has an opportunity to be fulfilled, to make their contribution to the world. Only they can do which is not for me to tell people what they can do, but it's for them to discover who they are and make that contribution themselves. So is your work with quiet disruptors facilitating that? Well, it's really interesting. I have spent many years working with businesses, working with boards. Um, I was a chief executive in the National Health Service in the UK for a decade. And a lot of what I was doing was helping people to be their best selves. And I was fascinated by the psychology of it. I was fascinated by what it is that helps people come alive and have great insights and think in new ways. And in doing so, actually work together in new ways. So that's always been a passion. And when I came up with the phrase quiet disruptors, a couple of years back, whilst I thought it was only going to be a description, an easy way of me saying who I was, because I've been quietly disruptive throughout my life in all sorts of different ways. So it was just a phrase for me. But what I found as I started using that phrase was that instead of people saying, oh, what do you mean by that? Or, oh, I disagree with you or just not interested. There were some people who were saying, oh, 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 do you mean my desire to make change, to do good things, to make a better world, I can do it and still be myself, still be authentic to who I am, rather than I have to pretend to be someone else because people who make change look like this. You mean... I can make change, I can make a difference, but I can do it my way. And that was extraordinary. That was just, just amazing. Because I really wasn't expecting it in people to question me or to not really pay much attention. 
um, you know, say, oh, well, that's okay, that's Sue. But actually what they did was they took this phrase and they looked at it and it's almost like they tried it on for size, you know, oh, does this fit? Oh, how do I look in this? <laughs> Precisely. You know, it's, it's, you know, when I saw your book, I just look at the title and it's, yeah, I'm going to read it, but yeah, I'm going to read it, but I know I'm going to like it because I'll I'll probably see myself in it and yeah. probably yeah. learn how I can be more of myself. And that I, I guess that's the thing. That's where I where I came up with the phrase and then started using it. And although part of my background, I've had quite a lot of involvement with organizational development, with leadership development, with coaching. So my initial reaction was, oh, how can I frame this phrase in a way that, you know, we could construct um, not a metric, but a, a, a way, a test, a way of people evaluating whether they were a quiet disruptor. And as I looked at it some more, I realized that was the wrong approach to take. So instead, what I did was I wrote a manifesto. So instead of saying, hey, there's this box, do you fit in it? Instead, I said, there's this change coming. There's this emergence of new voices in our time and we need to take note of them. We need to listen to them. So I wrote a manifesto. And would you make us the honour to read your manifesto? <laughs> I'd love to read it to you. Um, and uh, I'd also just to say that because this whole concept crosses cultures, then friends of mine around the world have translated it. You can read it in French, English, French, German, Portuguese, Korean. Right. And Welsh. Wow. But, but I'm open for anyone else to come to me to say, oh, I'd love to translate it for you. Um, and and all, those, all those versions are available on the Quiet Disruptors website. So you can download it. The Manifesto for Quiet Disruptors, because it's time to change the conversation for good. Have you noticed we're shifting from one era to the next, from the modern industrial age with linear and predictable answers to a complex, interconnected and volatile world, where what we do affects who others become and impacts our whole environment without us fully realising it. We need different voices, people with fresh things to say who don't need to shout. Not just superheroes with confident gestures, nor the loud, always-on culture with quick answers that offer attractive sticking plasters, yet fail to see what comes next or why we're doing it anyway. But the thoughtful and creative change makers who look from the edge and craft their responses, who want to make a difference differently, not just for today, because more of the same won't do. So now is our time to shift the conversation by becoming the change we want to see, owning our voice, finding the others and having the courage to speak softly about things that matter. Because only people make change, and change emerges with those who have the courage to be different, who think before they speak, who ask questions 
we'd sometimes rather not face, who create solutions we hadn't expected, who see more from the edge than the centre and make connections that surprise us, who are driven to make a difference but want to do it differently with grace, who get their energy from calm reflection, beautiful ideas and taking the long view who exercise kindness, generosity and stubborn courage in pursuing a different way of looking, being and doing that can turn our world upside down for the better. It's time for the new change makers, the quiet disruptors with the courage to speak softly about things that matter. That's really inspiring. I don't know where to start. <laughs> <laughs> well, just just pause because that, that's the really interesting thing is that the people who own the phrase, I'm a quiet disruptor, and the people who look like they might be quiet disruptors, they're not in a hurry. They, they know that there has to be time and space. Um, and that's because the kind of change that they, that we envision, isn't something that just happens overnight. Hmm. It's something where you have to give, um, you have to give room in order to change gear. And I think what I'm seeing in the people I've identified as being quite disruptors, the people I've spoken to, the people who whose stories I tell in the book, are those that want to make a really big difference. But they know that to do that, they've got to think more deeply. They've got to craft what they're saying more carefully because the kind of things that quiet disruptors are now talking about are not easy things because they disrupt. Because mm. you, you, know, you can't be a disruptor and not disrupt. Yes, you know, by its very nature, um, quiet disruptors are people who challenge the way things are. They challenge the status quo. Certainly, in my experience, um, you know, I, I asked questions. Yes, and that's part of being quite disruptive. It's not about standing on a soapbox and shouting and saying you're all wrong, <laughs> but it is about being prepared to go right into the middle of things and ask questions that expose the situation. Because that's the thing, is that questions can be very unsettling. But I think that's something I've learned, that asking questions. Sometimes when you ask the questions, you get the answer. So asking questions and asking good questions oh, is very important. It's really important. And there are There's a hierarchy of questions, yes. you know, in that sense, at the bottom end of the hierarchy, there are questions which you just have yes or no answers. And, and actually, they don't take us anywhere. Then there are questions which, in that sense, are more tactical. So, you know, who and what and where and when and things like that. But then there are questions which... Um, Warren Berger, who's written a beautiful book called The Most Beautiful Question, 
he says that there are questions like why and what if Mm. and how that force you to go deeper. Mm. Um, They're kind of questions that open up the cracks in the way that we're looking at things. And they are very, very powerful. Why is it so important to be a catalyst for change and why now? I have the feeling that this is the time also with a great opportunity to be a crisis disruptor and to trigger change. So why change and why now? Oh, very, very good questions. They are perfect questions. Thank you. (laughs) Yes, because actually there have always been quiet disruptors. If you look back through history, there are all sorts of people who were really thoughtful, uh, creative um, change makers, but they were more one-offs and the culture previously couldn't hear them. And that's why I think now is a very exciting time because if you think back, who have been the people you identify with, you know, really making change? Well, you look back and they're usually people, usually men, um, who are very decisive and are right out there at the front and are saying, follow me, I know the way, you know, trust me, we can do this. And that kind of change was of its era. Mm. But we're shifting eras. We're shifting eras because we've moved from the industrial era to the digital era. We've shifting eras because we've moved from modernism and uh, thinking that the world is controllable and understandable and all we have to do is become more productive and more efficient mm-hmm. and scale everything up. Mm-hmm. And we've been starting to cross a threshold for some time now. And I think that the seeing what has gone on with the global pandemic has accelerated this because it's made us realize that the world is not linear and it's not simple. There aren't simple answers out there and things are interconnected. And when you have that kind of world, then the change maker who gets up on a soapbox and says, well, just do this, could be completely wrong. It sounds a little bit counterintuitive where <laughs> today's trend is to be, you know, to create noise, well, to be everywhere and shout and be the loudest. Well, if I look at that, I agree with you that the dominant culture we're in is still very much always on making the most noise. You know, pick me, pick me, we're the best. But I'm also seeing, as I'm sure you're seeing too, there is a growing move of people who are saying, ah, no, that's not the answer. All this noise is not the answer. We need to think better, not just react. We need to respond. We need to be aware of the longer term. People like Simon Sinek, who who talk about the infinite game, because the previous era was very much about win or lose. And I think there's increasing number of people who are saying, actually, this is not about winning. It's about flourishing. It's about 
going back to my original thing about we're all connected and we need to see the whole, not just the parts. And it's really interesting because I think there is a counterculture emerging, which says it's not okay just to say, I look after me and mine, because actually we have a responsibility to each other and we have responsibility to the earth. We have a responsibility to the world. And we can't just do live in the bubble of me and mind. And I think the pandemic has really shown that. Nobody is immune. Yes. You can't buy your way out of it. Yeah. Oh, yes. If you are like many of us are, you know, people who have privilege and who have access to clean water, healthcare, food. But we don't live in isolation from others. No, we don't. It's like, you know, the COVID vaccine. Yeah. You realize that, oh. yes, we need to give vaccine to poorest countries. Otherwise, we'll never get out of this situation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's really interesting because I think that this year, as dreadful as it's been and as traumatic as it's been for many people, has given us an experience of the fact that we are global. We're a global village in a way that I don't know that we could have had in any other way. Mm. You know, I wouldn't wish this on anyone. Although I do have to say that given my healthcare background, I could see this coming. You know, something was going to happen at some point. So in the midst of that, whilst the dominant culture is still one of noise and shouting and just trying to be the biggest and the best, actually there are people who are saying we need to live more gently and who are saying... This isn't about trying to do everything, but maybe it's about doing something. I think that's the challenge for us. It's the challenge for your listeners, which is about saying, you have something to offer here. You have some astonishing things to offer that will make a huge difference, but you need to know who you want to speak to. It's not trying to be louder than everyone else. It's actually about making the connections with the people who are open to hearing. So you answered to one of my questions, how to be seen and heard if you're yeah. a fashion designer and you want to create change and you don't want to be too loud. And I don't think it's a working strategy to be shouting and say, oh, well, I'm doing this. I'm tackling this issue because you cannot save the world with a fashion brand. But you can make a difference. And the question is, how do you find that group of people? Because there are people who are looking for what you have to say, who are looking for what you have to offer. I can say this. I, I've been following um, particularly the slow fashion movement mm -hmm. and other aspects of textiles and textile development. I have a lifelong interest in textiles, but we breed alpacas and I'm really interested in what we do with the fibre. So I've had an interest for a long time. And what I'm seeing is that there are increasingly people who are, okay, they're watching what some people do. So they are watching what Patagonia does. Um, the outdoor apparel brand, uh, Outdoor Pursuits. And they've been watching and the kind of 
conversation that's going on around what Patagonia are doing and other brands like Patagonia. And as they're seeing them, that there's two things happening. One is people who love being outdoors, love being, you know, love their outdoor pursuits, walking, um, climbing, uh, being in the middle of nature. They are starting to say increasingly, I don't want to buy products that have a damaging effect on the environment. So I will change my buying habits. Instead of buying multiple things, maybe I'll only buy one, but I will choose to buy it from someone like Patagonia because I like what they're doing. Um, Secondly, Patagonia by the way they're doing it and the way that they are generating a conversation. And that might, you know, that was a brilliant one. They, um, I think it was in 2008, 2009, they took out a really big ad on Black Friday. Mm. And the ad said, do not buy this jacket today. You know, and you could look at it and say, goodness me, you know, from a business point of view, they've just shot themselves in the foot. Yeah, doesn't make sense. Actually, what they did was they really cleverly spoke to people who wanted to hear that kind of message. And the consequence was that, no, they didn't sell anything on that day because they they took their website down. But instead, they had cues of people saying, I want to be associated with that kind of ethical approach to fashion. And because they've done it and they've, they've been public about it, they have stimulated a public conversation. So more and more people have talked about the kind of things that Patagonia stands for. And as a consequence, not only have consumers shifted and started to make different choices about what they buy, but also producers have said, actually, that's the kind of company I want to be. I want to have a light footprint on the earth. I want to do good through what I do. So if I think to a completely different illustration, a a friend of mine, Josie McKenzie. um, That has been on the podcast. ah, (laughs) Oh, Josie is lovely. Yes. Uh, She's definitely a quiet disruptor. Um, And so your, your listeners will know her story. They've listened to this story. Oh, they've listened to the story. That Well, it's great. And for Josie, it was her saying, how can I honour both the makers and the environment in Sri Lanka? How can I support people who want to be able to feed their children and get education for them? But how do I do it in a, in a way that is really sympathetic with them and sympathetic with the land and uses the natural dyes as well as the cotton that's produced? And part of what she's doing is she is speaking about, she's, she's getting her products out there. She is displaying them beautifully. You know, she's really done her background work in terms of what is it that people really want? What is it they're looking for? But also, what do they want to be associated with? I think she's done a fantastic job in presenting all of that in a way that's really attractive. Now, the reality is her market is not huge. 
But her market will have people who will feel really good about buying products and about supporting the work out there. And the quality is good. You know, people talk about greenwashing. Mm. Um, you know, quiet disruptors, I don't think, are into greenwashing. That, no. would, be, that would be just so, so opposite. Mm. But, but Josie and Patagonia and many, many others, they are raising the question simply by putting their words out there. Definitely being a quiet disruptor is a very worthy pursuit in life. <laughs> you have given up your high power career to work in, this, in developing quiet disruptors. Uh, sort of. Um, it, it's, been, it's been an evolving journey. And I think this is characteristic of the time we're in now, too, is that I think that in the past, people said, oh, what's my career? What's, what am I going to do with my life? And they charted all out. Well, a bit like you said, you know, you chart it out and you do all the bits and you take the study and you work with this firm and you do that. And then what's next? And I think increasingly people are saying, actually, this isn't about having a job for life. It is about making intentional decisions at points along your journey where you're presented with a crossroads. And usually at those crossroads, you have choices. Do I want to be this kind of person or do I want to be that kind of person? And I think that um, what we're seeing, and I think we see this really especially with, with Gen Z and, and the millennials, is that people in this new era, people are asking different questions of themselves and their life, and they want to do things that have much more meaning to them. And you know, I think especially in this, in this time in, uh, in lockdown, I think people have really questioned possessions and status symbols and you know, all of that because it's become irrelevant in one sense. I think we're now finding there are many more people who are having the courage to ask themselves deeper questions about what's really important to them, and then making career choices to reflect that. How do we become a more effective quiet disruptors? That's a great question. That's a really good question. Okay, I think it's in several parts. The first is the first is we need to recognize it's a journey. It's something that grows. It isn't that you flick a switch and you're suddenly there. This is an emergence. This is us emerging. And therefore, the way I talk about it is about how can we become the change we want to see rather than just saying, how can I be the change I want to see? And there's a subtle difference there. When you use the phrase becoming, you giving yourself permission to grow and to learn and to fail and to pick yourself up again and to learn from it and to step on and to keep going. This is not about being perfect. It's not about getting there all in one go. This is not a sprint. It's a marathon. So that's the first thing. It's about becoming the change you want to see. 
not just trying to do it, you become it. Because actually, I think we need to embody change. And I'm very, very clear that people don't want to be told you have to change. Yes. Yes. I think what they want is they want to encounter people who embody that change. They want to encounter, they want to experience that change as they experience us. So that's the first thing. And then I think there are three three really helpful challenges to becoming the change we want to see if we're quite disruptors. Find the others, find your voice and find your space. And I deliberately put it in that order because I think that we've got an amazing opportunity now in which the whole world is much more connected and we can find people so much more readily is that we realise that we don't have to be isolated. Because actually it's really, change is really hard. Challenging stuff is really hard. You know, people don't understand. They don't like it. They feel uncomfortable and you have to keep going. And it's really hard to do that on your own. So I think a really important thing is to find other people who are trying to do the same thing. Find other people who think like you and who see the world as you do, because you can learn from them. Mm. They can learn from you. And when you're doing this together, it is very different than when you're just trying to do it on your own. Believe yes. me, I've, I've tried doing it on my own. And, and I realized, I realized a couple of years ago, oh, I was so isolated mm, yes. and, I was, and I was drying up. And, you know, if this is a marathon, this is about how we keep going for the long haul because it's not a quick race. So find the others. And sometimes that can mean making some quite deliberate choices, which might mean choices about where you're working. You know, certainly for me, there have been places where I have worked which were destroying me. You know, life is too short. Mm-hmm. We can't become the change we want to see if we are letting other people destroy us or trample all over us. That's the first thing. Second thing is find your voice. And what I need to say at this point is that your voice is not something out there, over there. Oh, and you've got to go and find it and put it on. <laughs> it's actually the voice that already is inside you but maybe you don't know it very well. You know, I, I didn't know I was a poet. I didn't know I was a writer. I didn't know that my voice could sound like it sounds, but I did an awful lot of work to mine and to practice and to explore what my voice sounded like, what I was passionate about, what I was really bothered about, what was so important that I was prepared to come out of my comfort zone and do something about. So find your voice. I think there's a number of ways of exploring that question. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, in the book, there is a whole big chapter on on things you could do to find your voice. Um, And it it recognises that our story is an important part of that. Um, Where our courage is and how we increase our courage. What's the kind of tone we want to take? 
Mm. For me, I'm really, I'm really clear now about my tone. And I don't do things that don't give me the opportunity to express my tone. Mm. But also I check those things where I'm starting to sound not like the tone I want to sound like. And I ask the question, okay, what's going on here? Why, what, what's going on that, that my voice is now like this? Hmm. So what do I need to pay attention to? Um, find your voice and practice it and use it. And in the book, there's, there's some very practical practical things. It's a short book, but people tell me it takes you quite a long time to get through it because there's yes. just so much in it. Um, and then the final bit is find your space, which is about where is the place where you're going to flourish? And particularly if you are a quiet disruptor, that does mean you need some quiet space. If you are in an environment that is noisy, cluttered, always on, you are going to drown in it. So you need to find those those places where you have quiet. I mean, for me, a big part of that is I go out and walk. Um, the, the difference between Steve, my husband and me, he goes out and walks around the valley and feeds the alpaca and he's got his headphones in and he's, yes. lis- and he's listening to podcasts. I go out and I leave my headphones at home. <laughs> I don't want to be listening to somebody else's voice. But this is important because the core of this is we need to recognise that people are different. Mm. Not everyone's a quiet disruptor. In fact, actually, I reckon that in terms of currently, it's probably less than 5% of the population. It's not big. There are many people who are quiet and who um, you know, uh, might exhibit a lot of the characteristics Um, that Susan Cain talks about in her book, Quiet. But quiet disruptors are people who are reflective, who are thoughtful, who tend to be on the edge of things, but they are passionate to see change happen. And as a consequence, they are prepared to get out of their comfort zone and to disrupt. Because actually they can't not do that. Yeah, they cannot they can't not do it. It's too important for them. They're driven to do it, which is why I, I think actually it's not a big percentage. <laughs> How do you know? Because it takes time and you're not in a hurry to achieve your goals. So how do you know that you're on the right path? And how do you know that maybe you might have achieved your goal? Well, that's a good question. Um that's because that's a really interesting question. And it's the kind of question that we ask when we think it's about winning. I'm not quite there yet. Well, yeah, but we need goals. We need to have a sense of we're doing things that make a difference. If we don't, you know, we dry up. As human beings, we need to feel like we're making a difference, that we count. Absolutely. But I don't think that there is, okay, I'll put it for me. For me, it's beyond my lifetime. Yes. So what I look for is their progress along the road. Am I creating a new path for people to follow on? Because actually that, 
that's part of the reason why I've called myself a quiet disruptor, is that that's the story of my life, which is creating new paths, going places that other people haven't been, mm-hmm. and creating a path so that people can follow me. That's why I talk about being a catalyst as well, because in a, all sorts of areas and ways, that's what I've done. I've gone to places, there hasn't been anything like this. It's new stuff. Mm. You know, <laughs> I'm lousy in jobs where I'm just maintaining stuff. <laughs> I'm hopeless. You know, I just, it just, I do it, but you know, I'm not good. Mm. So in answer to your question, what makes me feel like, and what might quite disruptors makes them feel like they're making a difference? Well, if you're someone who doesn't need to shout It also means that you're someone who notices the whispers and also notices the small things. So for me, since since I published the book, the times that people have said to me, whether they've emailed me or they've put something on social media or whatever, in the book that they feel seen and they feel heard, that absolutely delights my heart because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted people to have a sense of themselves, to have hope that they could make a difference by being themselves and to give them permission to just get on with it, not to wait for other people. Go do it. Mm-hmm. And I'm loving that. Um, I'm also loving, and this is another thing I will, you know, I kind of listen out for, I listen to see how the conversation is changing. Uh, So I listen to see where people are now starting to pick up things that they might not otherwise have picked up. I'll I'll give you an example of that. Um, In my daily posts, my little pause points, um, I've spent some time talking about thresholds and about liminal space, mm-hmm. you know, that space in between. And now there are many more people now who are talking about liminal space and thresholds. Mm. Hmm. So it's been a bit like dropping a, dropping a stone into a pond and seeing the ripples ripple out. I really enjoy your daily poems. <laughs> So do I. I love them. Not, not, not that I love them. I love writing them. I've really enjoyed writing them. You've already shared your manifesto, but do you mind sharing another of your poem on this podcast? I will. And it seems sort of appropriate in terms of a, you know, a closing. Um, this is the poem I wrote just as spring was starting to become evident. Just starting. Hmm. And the poem is called Awakening the Dawn. We don't need to shout, but we do need to speak. We can't make everything right, but we can make some things better. We can't see the whole yet, but we're noticing the shifts. Changes that are happening People who are emerging as if from a deep sleep 
covered by layers of neglect and judgment, awakening to a new dawn. Glimpses of hope in the sunrise of spring. Thank you. You publish this on your website every day? The daily pause points are actually published in two places as well as via social media. So it's on the Quiet Disruptors website and people can sign up to receiving the daily post into their inbox. So it's and Quiet Disruptors. Quietdisruptors.com. And sometimes they're poems, sometimes they're just single thoughts, sometimes they're using other people's voices. So I use other poets' voices as well, because the point of them is to give people a short moment in their day to just step back from what they're doing and recharge and relook at the world. So it's on the Quiet Disruptors website. It's also on another website called sueheatherington.com where I'm gradually collecting more of my words and that's where I'll also share. We're going to start recording some of the poems because I have done some poetry readings and people are saying, oh, we need to hear you. We need to hear you. So I'll do that. And that'll be on sueheatherington.com. Lovely. Well, actually, we can keep going for hours, <laughs> but I don't want to take too much of your time. Any last minute thoughts, anything you want to share before we wrap up? Yes. We are at a really significant time in history. And now is the time for people to have courage and to take seriously the changes they want to make and to recognise that the world's waiting for you. So that's what I'd want to say to you, Leaky, to your listeners. The world's waiting for you. We're waiting for you. Yeah, that's an opportunity, but also responsibility. It certainly is. Thank you so much, Sue. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye. Bye then. Thank you so much for listening. Did you like this episode? If you've enjoyed listening to Better Business Founder, why don't you share this podcast with a friend that could also benefit from these conversations? You can also subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts and leave a review to help other people find these conversations. And if you have any questions or suggestions, you can email me at hello at betterbusinessfounder.com. Hello at betterbusinessfounder.com. And I would love to hear from you because I believe that your business is the catalyst to create the change you want to see in the world. Mm-hmm.